Today's episode is sponsored by Penguin Random House South Africa, which is part of Penguin Random House, a Big Five publisher. Penguin has some exciting titles available this month. I've read one of them. Decima by Eben Fenter is a beautiful fable that attempts to inhabit the consciousness of a rhinoceros. I read it as research for a book I'm writing. It's breathtaking. Well, you know I love a good thriller, so I'm excited to read Character Scan by Douglas Kruger. It's about a woman who has the ability to detect corruption in others. Wouldn't that be a great superpower to have? I don't know, Gail. In South Africa, that might be kind of dangerous. I guess that's why Character Scan is a thriller. Look out for Decima by Eben Fenter and Character Scan by Douglas Kruger at all good bookstores. Hello everyone and welcome to the Hidden Lives of Writers. My name's Fiona Snickers and I'm talking to my co-host Gail Schimmel. Hi Gail, how's it going? I'm good Fiona, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. How's your writing week been? So I've had an interesting week that it's given me some insight into writing on holiday. Oh right, yes. Because We've just had a patch where you, you, as you know, I write with Kate Sidley. We write as Katie Gale and we write mm-hmm. cozy mysteries. And we've just had a patch where we've both been away one after the other. And I think we imagined that our writing process would carry on uninterrupted during this time. Right. And the reality is it hasn't. It's fallen apart completely. Okay. We haven't managed. Kate managed, Kate is the lead writer, she managed a bit while I was away, Mm -hmm. but while she's away, she can't manage at all. And when I was away, I I didn't manage to do my part very efficiently. And I think it's just, it's been a lesson for me that maybe when you go on holiday, Mm -hmm. you have to go on holiday. Yes. But at the same time, having said that, for my own writing, when I'm on holiday, it's one of my best writing times. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's the difference between a joint writing project and a loan writing project. I don't know. I feel like there's a lesson in here somewhere, but I can't quite find it. How's your writing week been? Yeah, well, this is interesting because in a way it ties in with what you were saying. I've been watching Kate's Facebook as she's been away and she's been talking about being in the Cotswolds and doing research for the novels that you guys work on, uh, the sort of English country village setting, seeing it with her own eyes, Mm. etc., And it's made me feel a little bit guilty about my research process, which normally involves entering search terms into Google. (laughs) Listen, Kate and I wrote four books set there before either of us set foot in the Cotswolds. So (laughs) so don't feel too guilty, but I'm very jealous of Kate now. Yes, I'm also terribly jealous of her, even though I've been to the places she's talking about, but it was a long time ago. But I'm just interested in this. Being physically in a place Mm. and seeing these things with your own eyes as opposed to anybody else's eyes, does it enrich your work? Does it make a difference? Do you bring that home and does it give a kind of new energy to the work? I think it's going to be such an interesting thing for Kate and I to watch Mm -hmm. going forward how this trip feeds our work and feeds mostly obviously her work because it's going to be hard for it to feed my part (laughs) of the work. Um, But I think it's going to be very interesting. I'll report back to you. 
You've mentioned that Kate has said before that she she likes setting. She likes to put your characters in a different setting. She doesn't like mm. to keep the narrative static. So maybe this will give it an, an, a new energy. I've got a feeling we're going to have some bizarre settings because she went on this trip with the idea that they would they would follow any crazy idea that came to them. So they went to fates and they went to dodgy pubs and had weird experiences and they really she sent me a photo from the fete that looks like you know we've set a book at a village fete Mm -hmm. and it looks exactly like I imagined it but also with details that we could never have imagined so I've got a feeling we're going to be seeing some unusual settings going forward fantastic I love it Okay, so what have you been consuming in the way of narrative this week? So I want to talk this week about a general, less a particular book, but a general trend and see what you think. So it started last, last time, um, when we spoke to James Henry mm-hmm. and, you know, he, he's such a renaissance man in a way that he, mm. that he, Draws and he does his music and his writing and his safariing. Mm. And I thought about other men who have these multi-talented portfolios and then write novels. Mm-hmm. And you kind of want the novel to be terrible. Okay. But they're not. Right. Um, and what springs to mind particularly is Graham Norton. I don't right. know if you've read Graham Norton. I haven't read his stuff. I mean, I know who he is, and I just assumed the books wouldn't be good. The books are magnificent. Oh, now, it is goodness. so wrong that a man that funny on TV mm-hmm. and that successful can then write a novel that is just magnificent and completely different from his TV persona. It's not like a, I'm now going to exploit my TV persona to make a novel. Mm-hmm. It's completely different. They're lovely, gentle, Irishy, wonderful family-driven novels, and uh, he's becoming one of those writers that I will read as soon as he comes out. And the other writers in this list, Richard Osman, yes, who yes, I love yes. on Pointless and mm-hmm. is now such a successful novelist mm, um, mm. and quite a motivation for cosy mystery writers. Yes. And apparently now Tom Hanks has brought out a very well-received novel. Yes, and he's had a collection of short stories yes. out before, which I've also read. Um, brilliant isn't exactly the word, but cerebral and interesting and intellectual, I would say. It's just not fair. Do you think <laughs> if we decided to become movie stars, we'd be just as successful? I don't know. Don't we also <laughs> multitask? Aren't we raising brilliant children while writing? Is that not the same thing? But we aren't becoming famous <laughs> for any of it, Fiona. <laughs> what are you reading this week? Well, I actually wanted to talk about something that I've been watching, um, which is a series on BritBox called Happy Valley. And boy, has it gripped me. Someone recommended it. And the main character is this sergeant. She's she's not even a, a detective. She's in uniform in a kind of fairly rough town in a valley in West Yorkshire. And I just like her as a character because... She's not a Mary Sue. Um, What's a Mary Sue, Fiona? <laughs> okay. So a Mary Sue is, well, it has been identified as a trope in writing, particularly in young adult, in fantasy and science fiction, where there's a female protagonist who's just too perfect. You know, she's gorgeous. She never makes any mistakes. She's admirable. She always knows the right thing to do. She powers ahead and gets everything right. 
And it, it's a problematic term from a feminist point of view because there is no male equivalent of a mm. Mary Sue. I mean, none of us object to the fact that Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible is also perfect and doesn't make any mistakes and mm. doesn't have any flaws, you know. But but for some reason, when a woman character is so highly competent, people start saying, oh, Mary Sue, no, 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 she's got to, she can't be that good. And really it is something, it's something to think about mm. in creating your characters. Mm. Don't make them too perfect, but also in the right setting, a highly competent lead can work. And it can be part of their character because I do feel, and maybe I'm sounding a bit defensive because I think I've written a Mary Sue, <laughs> except I gave her faults. That was the whole point of the book. But, um, there are those women who present as being, they got the memo. Mm-hmm. They know how life's done. Mm-hmm. They don't make mistakes. They they manage the job and the children and the, the this and the that without mm-hmm. any mistakes. They never drop a ball. They always look beautiful. There are those women, and I know that what's going on under the surface is probably not as perfect as as what they're presenting. But maybe that's why it is. Maybe there is a phenomena of women presenting as perfect and hiding their faults, whereas men just maybe let us see their faults face on. But why do women attract resentment for that? Why do we kind of yeah. hate the perfect woman and don't really we, – we admire the perfect man and we yeah. resent the perfect woman, it's, even in fiction? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That is a big thing and it's actually something I try to be so careful of um, in my personal life that when I meet one of those women that the first instinct is, you're too perfect, I'm going to hate you, mm. that I pause and I go, I'm going to get to know you. Yes. Um, yes I yes. think that's a really important thing, but it, it's it's definitely something. I think it's something, though, that leads us to a rich stream of writing, so a lovely thing to be aware of. Yeah, creating nuance in character. And a writer who really knows how to write nuanced characters is our guest today, Fred Kamalo. So we have Brad Pitt in the studio today. Welcome, Fred Kamalo. You know him from his books, Bitches Brew, Touch My Blood, Dancing the Death Drill, Talk of the Town, The Longest March, A Coat of Many Colors, and Two Tons of Fun. And I know there's more coming from Fred in the near future. Fred is the winner of the European Literary Award, the Alan Payton Award, and the Nadine Gordimer Short Story Award. I won't even go into all his nominations because there are just too many. Welcome to the Hidden Lives of Writers, Fred. Thank you very much. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here, being interviewed by fellow writers who understand what this is all about. Thank you. I want to start with Fiona. You introduced Fred as Brad Pitt, and that made perfect sense to me. But Fred, how did this this thing that you known as the Brad Pitt of writers come about? <laughs> Be- because I mean, I mean, I I know why I think it's true, but but how did it come about? It came about. We were launching uh, Sunyati's novel, The Gold Diggers, a couple of years ago in in Rosebank mm-hmm. Exclusive Books, and uh, this. Young woman uh, who'd been uh, reading my books came to me and said, "Finally, I get to meet the Brad Pitt of literature." <laughs> and 
I said, well, what do you mean? No, you are the Brad Pitt. So I said, it's not about looks. And he said, no, it's not about looks, but you are the Brad Pitt of South African writing. So I never, <laughs> I never got her to, um, to really unpack what she meant. But, uh, <laughs> I thought it was about the looks myself. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's about clothes because I love clothes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so does uh, Brad Pitt. Well, that's my assumption. So yeah, people use that on on Facebook in uh, in reference to me. Uh, they say Brad Pitt of yeah, and my wife just laughs about it. Ah, you're not that beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was the looks because you know we recently interviewed James Hendry, who when Fiona googled him, um, the first question that Google filled in was, "Is James Hendry married?" So it seems half the world is in love with James, but it's an open secret that I'm a bit in love with Fred. So I'm just putting it out there on the table so that everybody knows. And now I thought the Brad Pitt was all about that. <laughs> well, Gail, I introduced Fred by mentioning Bitches Brew. And I believe that that book had an influence on you when it came out. So, yes, um, Bitches Brew came out, I think, when I was very early in my writing career. I think I was trying to write. And it's one of the books that I was, oh, my God, this is what a South African writer can write. This is what we can do as South Africans. And it's one of the books that actually led me here. Um, I want to know when you were writing it, did you feel like you were doing something different for the times that you were breaking new ground? Because for me, I felt like this is just how it should be for South African writers. No, I'm, I'm not one of those, uh, uh, theoretically driven writers or, or writers who are driven by theory or at what has happened before. I look for a medium or a voice that I feel appropriate to this story. Remember, this was my first published novel. Mm-hmm. I had written other things that I mistook for novels. With- <laughs> 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 um, so I experimented. You do recall that it's uh, it's written in the form of letters. Uh, there's a, um, an academic uh, Epistomal, epistolary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah, yeah. I discovered after the publication of the of the novel that it was an epistolary novel. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't study literature at university. I studied journalism and politics. Mm-hmm. So my literary uh, style is influenced, but by what I have read mm-hmm. and enjoyed. So I, yeah, I look up to a lot of, uh, I try to emulate writers that I really enjoy, Walter Mosley, Stephen King, and, and others, because they're entertaining while dealing with really, really, really serious issues. So that was my approach with uh, Beaches Brew. Uh, it's a love story, but I wanted to, uh, to be fun. Mm-hmm. I had to have fun with it myself as a writer, and um, hopefully that that level, that sense of enjoyment would be transferred to the reader as well. So that's, I never thought I was breaking new ground by any stretch of the imagination. Well, I, for me, it felt like it, and it was inspiring. And if you feel that my books should not be out there, it's your fault that they are. I'm interested in the way you wrote in the character of Letty, your main female protagonist. You wrote in her voice and you've returned through your career to writing in the voice of a woman. 
Is that something that you've ever hesitated to do? How do you occupy the mind of a woman? Yeah, that was a challenge that I set myself there uh, to say, how does a woman who has been so abused and taken for granted all her life, how does she perceive of the world that she, that she inhabits, the relationships that she has with uh, with the man in, in her life and her own children? How does she ne- navigate life? Uh, so I wanted to that experience to be as visceral as possible, hence my decision to get into her head, so to speak, and view the world from her perspective. So it's not reported speech, she said, but she is saying, I feel like this, I observed this. Yeah, it was a challenge uh, that I set by myself, and I thought um, that was the best way to explore Letty's world. Fiona, we've been so thrown by having Brad Pitt here, maybe that's just me. We didn't start in the right place. We're supposed to start by asking Fred how his writing week was. Okay, we'll ask the question Fred, how has your writing week been? No, no, my writing week is... So I am working... I normally write every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I set myself a quarter of, of words every day. We don't allow you to get away with saying that. What is the word quote? 1,500 every day. That's ambitious. But it doesn't mean everything I produce every day is publishable or even readable to to the next person. It's just training the muscle. Some some of the stuff that I produce could be related to um, a specific project that I would be working on or something unrelated. Uh, I've discovered over over the years that some of the things that I thought would have belonged to a, a novel that I would be working on at any given time doesn't really work for the novel, so I put it in a in a in a folder uh, that I, I I call fragments. Mm-hmm. So I uh, if the fragment doesn't really really fit within the story the novel that I'm writing at that particular moment. I put it in, in the fragments um, uh, uh, folder. Some of those fragments f- finally became short stories. Yeah, And I realized, no, it, it doesn't really fit within the story that I'm trying to tell. And then I, I repurpose it. I repurpose it. Uh, um, uh, and, and it becomes a short story. Um, or it becomes uh, a, a segment for another uh, novel in the future. Yeah, there's no real sense to it, but I I try to write every every day. And have you succeeded this week? Oh, this week I'm I'm working on a non-fiction project. Oh, <clears throat> I'm working for I'm I've been commissioned by a think tank. Uh, we are writing political scenarios. That's a very different kind of writing. So I'm I'm the head writer for this scenario planning thing. So that's what is keeping me busy now. So the creative writing is, has been put on hold for, for, for now, yeah. especially this week because I have to deliver the next um, scenario. I delivered my first scenario two weeks ago. I'm delivering the next scenario uh, next week. Uh, yeah, yeah, next week I deliver. So that's what occupied me this week. So my creative writing, back burner. 
I've got so many questions arising from what he said. Am I allowed to go down a bit of a process hole before I give you a chance? Yes, go for it. Let's go. <laughs> the way you talk about writing, it sounds like you, you're not a linear and we, we, we've recently been talking about this. It sounds like we, we both will start a book at the beginning and write to the end. And we don't jump around. From what you're saying, do you jump around? Do you start at the beginning and write to the end? How do you, how do you, when you're in a novel, how do you write it? When I was starting out, I, um, I made many mistakes. Um, one of them being, I just get inspired and start writing. I don't have a, a roadmap. Uh, I don't have, I don't have a, an outline. That was a huge mistake because I wrote two, Things uh, that that uh, that I showed around to Chris Van Vick. Uh, you remember how funny he was. Yes, um, yes. So I I gave him this manuscript. Um, he read it, and then he called the meeting, and uh, we're sitting. And a uh, comrade Fred, beautiful English you have here, but uh, Fred. There's no fucking story here. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear him say yeah. <laughs> And excellent advice. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I realized um, my major problem with that, I did not have a plan. So that's why uh, the story was all over the place. Um, ultimately, there was no story. So what I do now, um, taking advice from the likes of Chris and other writers, Stephen King is one you'd advocate of an outline. Mm. You have an outline. It can be as detailed as a chapter-by-chapter outline, or it can be a short 10-page summary of where the story begins and ends. So I, ha- I ha- every time I start writing a novel, I have that kind of outline these days. It helps a lot. But now the writing itself is not always linear. I could be writing, okay, first chapter, this I'm setting the scene. And then I, as I'm thinking about the story, I know at some stage this character is going to go this way, but it's not necessarily the second chapter or third chapter. But I write it anyway. I'm going to uh, polish it later when the story, when the other chapters have fallen into place. So the writing itself is, is never linear. I could start with the first chapter, and then I want to know what the, the final chapter could be. So I write a very rough um, ending to to a book so that okay. it anchors me. Yeah. And writing yeah. like that, do you use a writing software or do you work in Word? No, no, I don't have a software. Uh, because I believe Word, Word. it's easier when you write like that to use one of those Scrivener or Plotters one I'm hearing about now because it allows you to do very fancy things with is your it, planning. But personally, I write in Word. So. No, I've never used any of the uh, uh, software packages. I hear about them. I don't even know how they work. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not yet. Maybe we're too old for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Fred, your two books, The Longest March and Dancing the Death Drill, which have been incredibly well received, are both historical novels. Can you talk us through how you became aware of the incidents on which they are based and how you decided that this was a moment in history that you wanted to shine a light on and that you wanted to insert your characters into those moments in history? The, the, the first one, a Dancing the Death Drill, relates to the sinking of the SS Mandy during the First World War. Yes. Um, as a, a kid growing up uh, in KZN, the story of the Mandy is one of those 
stories that we grew up with, a story that grandpas and old people would tell mm-hmm. in the oral tradition. But the details were very vague. You know, uh, the story was, it sounded to our ears as kids, as kids, it sounded like one of the folk, folk tales right. that people would tell. Uh, I remember there was even a, a choral song because I used to sing in, in choirs um, uh, until metric. I, I was a very serious cho- chorister. So there was a song about the SS Mandy as well, um, a Zulu Zulu choral song about the SS Mandy. We sang that. I'm so tempted to ask you to sing. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, as I'm, I'm as I'm saying, growing up, the story is there. You you hear about it, but you don't really really take it seriously. Fast forward to, I think it was 2009 or eight. Um, I'm in France in my capacity as a journalist, uh, at the invitation of the Foreign Ministry of France. So I'm with uh, John Buttersby, uh, who was with the Independent at the time, and uh, Chris More, who was the, with the Sowetan. And I was working for a port newspaper at the time. So we are in France, and uh, at some stage, the guy who, uh, our chaperone, took us, drove us um, from from Paris, took us to the train, and we took a train from Paris all the way to the coast. Get to the coast, a small town called Dieppe, mm-hmm. and... Um, we get a hired car from, from this a train station. We drive. And the guy drives us to a graveyard. So I'm thinking, oh, that the French have got a very strange way of enter- entertaining their deaths. <laughs> <laughs> you drive all the way from Paris to the coast and you take us to the graveyard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're laughing about it, the three of us here. So what, what the hell is happening here? Until... We see um, tombstones with um, South African surnames, Mukwena, Vundla, and that's okay. Maybe the guy is up to something, and then he tells us, "No, guys, I wanted to surprise you." So he says, "No, uh, this. Are you guys familiar with the story of the SS Mendy?" So I said, "Yes, I used to sing about it." And Chris Mori, who's from the Northwest, says, "Yes, there's even a street somewhere named after the the, the sinking of the SS Mendy." But John Buttersby didn't know, wasn't aware of the story. So the guy tells the story very briefly. And he says, these guys, these tombstones that you see, some of these guys were survivors of the SS Mandy. Others um, would have traveled because the the guys who went down with the SS Mandy were just one of many battalions of men who went to serve in France. So he says some of the people that are buried here were comrades of those who were on the SS Mandy, but they came before the guys on the SS Mandy. So they died of um, natural causes. They're buried here. Others died um, through combat. They're buried here. So that's why the guy had decided to take us there. And then, you know, I got excited. So I remember the story that our grandfathers used to tell. So, So it really happened. So I wrote a series of articles for my newspaper about this and the level of interest yes. from our readers, people writing letters to say, yes, my grandpa told us, these are Africans speaking people. Remember, I'm, I'm writing for a report at the time. Say, no, no, my grandpa was um, with the natives uh, who were on the ship. Um, others, and you know, the 
it was a very interesting a moment for me as a writer to 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 get all those responses and i felt maybe there's a book here and at the time i thought it would be a non-fiction book but then i realized that would be very difficult because even the survivors the people who came back from the war uh, the first world war mm. um would be dead by now mm. those who are still alive would be yeah they wouldn't very remember old. Yeah, very old. <laughs> they wouldn't remember anything so writing and i looked at the archives the archives uh, the newspapers of the time covered the story of the sinking of the ss mandy uh but it was just the numbers how many men died and so on and uh, even the names of the people who went down were not published they only published interestingly enough they only published the names of the white officers who were there um the white officers who were there had also written letters to their families mm-hmm. so the, the 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 there was a a bit of curating around the letters that that were written um by the officers who were on that particular boat and others around that same time now the the black soldiers the black men who were on that ship were just numbers right yeah so i felt no maybe i don't have a non-fiction book here i have a novel mm-hmm. now uh taking this story into novel form uh liberates me gives me the freedom to imagine to just um embellish uh, things while sticking to the facts yes i can't change the number of people who went down with the mandy mm. um but i can imagine how it was Mm. to have been on that ship as it was going down so that's that's how i got to write the story of the ss mandy that is a yeah. fabulous <clears throat> backstory mm. wow yeah, yeah, wow yeah, yeah, and yeah. the longest march the longest march now that one i um was i was only alerted to that story because i wasn't aware of these people okay for the benefit of of our listeners um The longest march is inspired uh, by a story of 7000 uh, Zulu uh, people mainly Zulu men who were working on the mines in Johannesburg just before the outbreak of the uh, the, uh, the the so-called Anglo-Boer war now now called the South African war in 1899 so um these people were as i say they were originally from uh, zululand and natal as the as that part of the country was called back then um they were supposed to go back home uh, just before the outbreak because an alert had been sent please go home and uh, zulus being zulus uh, you know we are very obstinate and stubborn <laughs> i said no it's a war between you white people so so singena how do we get in there No, just fight it out. We'll wait for you until when you're done. Then we start working on the mines again. Fair enough. So, so they refused to go home. So, and then the mines were shut down. Now, now that their source of income has been shut down, there were riots. There were food riots in Johannesburg. So they started looting. So looting didn't start in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> So they start looting this rampage on the streets in Joburg and now they're starving. They, they 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 don't earn any money and so it becomes clear to them no 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 we have to go home. 
But now it's very late in the day because the trains that would have uh, transported them to, to their places of origin have now been commandeered by the army. So what do they do? They have to walk from Johannesburg to Natal, which is um, roughly 500 kilometers, depending on where you're going. Now they are faced with um, a challenge. If they walk as a group of 7,000 black men uh, on the eve of the outbreak of war, they might be mistaken because they would be passing through white-owned um, farms and white-owned, uh, white-controlled towns mm-hmm. uh, from here to, 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 to Zululand and Natal. They might be mistaken for an enemy and shot. So what do they do? They go to the white guy who recruited them to come here, uh, James Marwick. He originally came from Richmond, which is uh, in just outside Peter Morrisburg, KZN. So they go to him. They say, no, you brought us here. Take us home. So he, he was very smart. He thought very quickly, how do I solve this? So he wrote a series of letters um, to government authorities seeking a passage through the towns and uh, wrote a series of letters to the magistrates of all the towns that they would be passing through to say, when you see a group, this of huge 7, of 7,000 black people, we come in peace. Do not shoot. What you could do, in fact, is tell the farmers in your area to slaughter um, some, some, some beasts and you sell meat to us because we would be we would have run out of our food supplies. So that is what happened. So they started walking. They left uh, Johannesburg on the 7th of October and got to Ladysmith uh, 10 days later. Imagine 7,000, uh, uh, mainly men and some women and children, with their belongings mm. in scorching heat. Remember, it's October, it's hot, mm. and there are intermittent rains as well. So they walked 10 days. and uh, So I only heard about this, this story uh, by chance, I'm driving from work. Um, uh, Jenny Cruz Williams still had a show on 702. Yeah. And uh, she's interviewing an academic who is telling this story that I'd never heard of. 7,000 black men walking from KZ, from, um, from Johannesburg to KZN. So I'm listening. Wow. What a story. So after the show, I phoned, uh, Jenny. Um, okay. I would like to, um, to have uh, the that academic's number, the academic that you were interviewing, I would like to speak to her about that because this academic had written. She's an academic. She had converted her PhD, which was on mm. this march. She had converted it into into a book, a nonfiction book. And uh, I said I would like to read that nonfiction book. There might be a story there. And uh, yes, I spoke to the academic, and she. Well, the book um, was out of print, but she very graciously did a photocopy of her book and sent it to me. I read it. It's a very short book, nonfiction. I said, there's a novel here. So that's what happened. Yeah, so I wrote a novel. Fred, you are such a natural storyteller that I find myself sitting here riveted, even though, you know, even having read the books, you sit here riveted by the story. Um, I, I want to ask you about, you've talked about, you study journalism mm. and you work as a journalist. Yes, yes. 
how does one balance that? How do you balance? So you're using a writing energy in your day job and you're using a writing energy in, let's call it your side gig, although I think to call writing fiction a side gig for you is very disrespectful, but I don't know how else to word it. Um, how does one balance having to produce all those words? Where do you find the energy? How do you do it? And in that, how did you come to writing fiction and not just journalism? But it's it's very very um it's very challenging making the transition from journalism. Journalism we are we are taught right from the f- first first from your first year of study. Keep it simple, yeah, and and keep it as simple as as possible as as possible. Um, short sentences, short words. Uh, don't be fancy and all that. Yeah, mm-hmm. now. Fiction is opposite. You're trying to get into uh, your character's um, inner, inner, inner life, inner space, and so on. It's it's always a challenge for me to make that transition. Mm. And uh, even in the technical side of writing itself, um, journalistic writing. Um, um, I, I, I don't mean to be. Um, Disrespectful to my craft, it can be very simplistic, uh, and um, whereas when you are writing fiction, you want to be, you want to be, uh, what's the word? You want to go deeper into 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 the story. You want to go beyond the surface or beyond what's on the surface. So this is the challenge that faces me every time I. I make the transition from my daily, my, my day-to-day job of simple, of simple writing to the other kind of writing. Uh, and sometimes I'm, I'm writing a chapter, um, in a novel and I think, oh, this is so journalistic. What are people going to say? You know, you know, <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. I have to keep redrafting and redrafting. But having said that, what journalism has taught me is the discipline of writing. Mm. Um, you don't wait for inspiration. Um, you just write. Mm. You say to yourself, I'm going to write. Uh, you set yourself a quarter, uh, whatever. Every writer has, has got their own, their own approach to, to writing, how they keep themselves focused on, on the project at hand. So, um, what I always tell people, young, young writers asking for advice, but I'm not inspired. How can I write if I'm not inspired? So I tell, I tell them my, my experience. Um, before joining City Press, I used to have, um, a very popular column at Sunday Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it was a weekly column and it was supposed to be funny. Uh, and so you have to deliver that every week. Uh, so I, I said to these kids, I couldn't go to my editor and say a, a, a Mondly or Ray or whoever was editor at the time. No, I'm not inspired this week. There's no color. <laughs> I couldn't say that. I have to, I have to push myself to, to not only deliver, but also try and maintain the, the, the standard that I have set for myself and my readers. My readers expect the column to be funny. Mm. I'm human being. I have my ups and downs and all that. And, uh, I get depressed. I get angry. I get 
challenges at home, uh, blah, 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 have fights with the tax man, but I still have to be funny, you know. So, so I, journalism taught me that discipline to say, just, just be inspired, even if you are not inspired. <laughs> so, yeah. so I'm grateful for, for that discipline that I get from that space mm. and which now I use in this other space, the creative writing space. It doesn't always work, as I say. Uh, I can produce 1,500 words every day, but not publishable sometimes. And how much does it hurt you to throw those words away? uh, As I said earlier, um, sometimes I used to throw them and forget about them. And I said, no, keep them. I think it was, I think it was Stephen King in his, in his uh, writing memoir, uh, on writing. I think he, I think, I think I picked uh, that piece of, of advice from him that you don't throw anything away. You write it, and if it doesn't work for the project uh, that you are busy with, keep it. You might find use for it later. And that has worked for me as well. Yeah. Fred, several of your books have been converted for the stage. Um, how involved have you been in that process? And even on taking it on the road, taking projects overseas as stage plays, have you been deeply involved in that? Uh, no, um, with uh, the stage adaptation to Touch My Blood, my, my autobiography, well, they invited me to join uh, re- the rehearsals. They introduced me to the cast. Um, uh, they, well, they didn't have a, a written script. They said, this is how we see the story. Um, so I sat through the rehearsals and, and, uh, they, they would ask, uh, are we on the right track? So I would say, maybe it changed. My father didn't behave like that. He was like this and that kind of thing. So in, in, in a very advisory, um, uh, advisory, uh, uh, role, role. Yeah. So I was not really deeply involved. So that was touch my blood. And then with, um, with, uh, dancing the death drill. So they, that one, okay, the, 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 the touch my blood, uh, adaptation was done by James Ngobo, who at the time was with, uh, the market theater. And then, uh, dancing the death drill was done by a production company based in Cape Town. So they do musicals. They, that's their specialty. So they also bought, um, bought the rights to the book and then they said, when we are ready with rehearsals, would you like to come and join us and see what we do? So, yeah, they invited me and I went there. There I was a bit more involved right from the beginning. I'm not, I can't write music, but I would say maybe that kind of singing is more closer and these guys are Zulu. So, uh, yeah. And and you've the, got that whole choral Background. Yes, 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 yes. And the musical director is, is a good guy. Uh, Mandisi is good, is good. And so I said, no, 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 no. Yeah, the, the song is great, but, uh, it, it needs a Zulu inflection. You guys are doing it uh, the closer way because obviously you guys are closer, but in Zulu and they were flexible. So they accommodated me there. And, um, so yeah, I watched, uh, my words being, turned into music that was very, very, very good for the ego, that I'm a very musical writer, you know. (laughs) (laughs) 
Fred, you've touched on an interesting aspect that you're writing in English, but English is not your mother tongue. Mm. Uh, how frustrating is that for you? Um, or not at all? Is English your writing language and that's just how it's always been? And would you ever write in Zulu, straight to Zulu? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm bilingual in my writing. I've, I've published. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, I I've, didn't realize I've, this. The reason, okay. My very first job um, as a journalist was with a Zulu language newspaper, although I was trained in, in journalism in English. Um, I started writing in Zulu, which which was a challenge. I speak Zulu as a first language, but writing and speaking are two different things. Mm. Yeah, so it was it was more challenging for me to write in my mother tongue than it was because I, as I say, I got trained in. Internalism through the medium mm. of English, so I, I became comfortable with the language, even though it's my second language. Mm. Now I had to make the transition of writing in my mother tongue, which was a, a challenge. Yeah. Some of the editors there so, so, uh, would say, "No, no, now you are thinking in English. This is a Zulu, Zulu language newspaper. This is English. That you, you've written English in Zulu." No. <laughs> and Zulu is a difficult language. Uh, grammatically, it's a difficult language. I know this from watching my children learn it. Mm-hmm. It's it maybe not to it's, you. It's, no, it's, if it's, you it's, learn it's, it as a second language, <laughs> it's very complicated. <laughs> no, okay. Um, it's simpler uh, compared to English. We don't have past perfect tense in Zulu. We have, yes. Uh, past tense, future tense. Yeah, three tenses. That's it. All these uh, funny things uh, that we have in English are not there in Zulu, so that's why I I think it's easier okay. that way. Yeah. Um, okay, it's the it's the it's the vocabulary. Mm. The vocabulary is very very vast in Zulu, and you can have. Yeah, we use a lot of euphemisms in Zulu mm. um, when it comes to. Intimate things, you know, uh, like sex, like, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, if I'm speaking to a person who's my father's age or my mother's age, I can't say you. I speak to to that person in the third person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as Sister Gail has said. Okay. Know, yeah, yeah. So actually, very like Afrikaans in that way. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, oh yeah, I was, I was. Uh, ex- trying to explain that I write in both uh, uh, languages, but the problem when I started writing um, uh, uh, short stories and novels, uh, the publishing industry was not ready for black writers writing in their languages. Uh, there, there were no outlets for us. Mm. Yeah, That's why I think there yeah. still aren't enough. Outlets. Yes, yes, because uh, the argument from the publishing industry was. No, there's no market for that. Uh, black people, anyway, um, buy uh, uh, books in English, uh, which is which is nonsense. Because um, if you look at the newspaper industry, one of the biggest newspapers in this country for a long time was Isolezwe, which is a, a Zulu language daily paper. It has outstripped all other newspapers. Uh, in yeah, and. Uh, the success of that has inspired other language groups to do the same. Mm. So there's Isolezo and Istrosa now. And there are many new publications in my mother tongue mm. in Zulu to say there is a market. But the industry, the publishing, book publishing industry is 
taking too long to respond to that demand. Yeah. However, things are opening up. So yeah, I am. Um, I have written uh, two books in in Zulu. Oh, excellent! Yeah, a collection of short stories uh, in Zulu for younger readers, and um, and uh, oh yes, um, we translated "Dancing the Death Drill" into Zulu. Mm-hmm. And yeah. did you do the translation? No, no, no I didn't. Okay. Uh, I, I hired a, a special special guy, a, a real translator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, so and I wrote I wrote. A novel for younger people in Zulu, yeah. It was a, it was a huge challenge for me mm. to write in to write a full length uh, 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 work in my mother tongue. It was really, 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 really challenging. Yeah, but exciting. I imagine. exciting, exciting. Yes, yeah. It was it was more difficult than than writing in English because I, I use the language every every day. Yeah. Yes, in Zulu, I sit here in Joburg. We don't even speak proper Zulu in Joburg. So I struggle for words. I've mm. forgotten the, the language because I don't use it every day. At home, my mother is, my, my wife is Tosa. So at home, we speak a mixture of Zulu, Tosa, and English. Uh, yeah. Um, so now I'm writing in Zulu and I can't find a word for something very simple, you know, uh, because it's not the word. It's not the language that mm. I use every day. Yeah. Mm. So, but yeah, gradually things are changing. The book publishing um, industry is opening up to our languages, and I see more and more younger writers deciding, no, let's just write in our languages. If they reject us, we self-publish, and I see mm. a lot of that. Yeah, exciting times. <clears throat> I have a couple of questions about a coat of many colours. Mm. Um, firstly, to do with the cover design of that. I believe your son was involved in that. Yes, yes. Was was that fun to work with your oh, yeah. child in producing a book? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He he's done three uh, covers so far. Oh. Uh, he did the cover to the my Zulu collection of short stories. Mm-hmm. Uh Kofi. He did the cover for that, which was really really stunning. And he did um the cover for the Zulu edition of of Dancing the Death Drill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then um for this one, um, the Coat of Many Colors, which is published by um, Quella Books. Mm-hmm. So um, I submitted the manuscript, which they liked. And so before they moved on to the cover, I said, no, um, may I ask that you guys engage my son's uh, services as a cover designer? And so I said to him, send them all your stuff that, that you've done. Because he does uh, CD covers, book covers, magazines, and so on, and uh, they liked it, mm-hmm. so they said, "No, go ahead and do a cover." So that's so that's how it it, co- it came about. Yeah, it's a stunning cover. It's thank very you. very striking. Thank you, thank you. Um, and that story is very much set during the time of COVID. Um, we have sanitizer, we have masks, we have lockdowns, we have mm. um, misinformation. You know, fear. Is the goat going to give us COVID? Is, you know, how, how exactly do you get this disease? Yes. Which took me right back to the early days when nobody really knew mm. what on earth was happening. Yes. Um, did you write that during the time of COVID? Yes, yes, yes. In the middle of COVID. Wow. Yeah, I wrote because that, so yeah. many authors were reluctant to touch it. We mm. were living through it, but many mm. authors were, I'll write about anything except this awful thing that's happening to us mm. right now. Mm. Mm. Was it, was it a challenge? Yeah, that's why 
uh, in the story itself, everything is open-ended. People are still asking questions. Can I get COVID from a goat? Uh, can I get COVID from drinking, from sharing a cup with 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 the next person? Mm. Uh, you know, so I get my characters to ask those questions. I I don't want to be definitive because at the time I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no yeah. one knew. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's why it's like open ended like that. Mm. And was it? Did you find it harder to write during COVID or easier? Um, I, I asked because I wrote a lot during COVID, but I know the general experience was that a lot of writers stopped writing during COVID. Yeah, those oh. who were paralyzed by the experience. Uh, no, I, I wrote a lot. Um, I wrote a lot. Uh, how different was... Was it not no, different I, I, for you? Perhaps? I think it was normal. Okay. Yeah, the output was almost the same. Uh, I didn't increase the number of words uh, that I produced every day, or did I, nor did I decrease. I don't remember. I think it was the same. Perhaps because you are such a disciplined writer, mm-hmm. um, you you didn't. But of course, I, I was scared, like everyone else. I was scared. Mm. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I remember Melinda asked us to to write. Yeah, I wrote a chapter. To that lockdown book mm, that yes. that she she put together, yeah, um, yeah, responding to COVID as well. How how, what what am I seeing on the mm. ground? How how is it affecting me? And yeah, yeah, and oh, something that happened uh, during COVID. Um, so now everyone is in in lockdown. Um, I'm sitting at home. I've got my uh, grandkids. In Devon, uh, we normally speak. So now they are at home. Their mother, uh, my daughter, is just uh, irritated with them. They are all over and, no, no, speak to your grandpa. Speak to your grandpa. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we'd, we'd um, video call each other and uh, tell them stories because I'm sitting at home. They are sitting at home. Uh, so that way I'm... Um, um, keeping them away from from their mother so i tell them stories and i, I start reading them stuff and and then an idea occurred to me um i'm reading them a, a short story almost every day how if i take this and read to a bigger group yes so oh, that's yes, what I happened remember this. yes yeah. i remember this yeah so so i i um Took the whole thing to Facebook Live. Mm. So every weekday at 12 noon, I would invite people with kids to allow their kids to join me. And I read from different uh, children's books in Zulu and English and so on. So that's, that's what, that's what happened uh, during lockdown. Yeah. That's yeah, a lovely yeah, COVID yeah, experience. Yeah. 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 Um, in your book, Two tons of fun. You inhabit the character of this, I think she's 14 years yes. old, Lorato, and you write very much from inside her character. Um, and also it's set in Alexandra Township, but you now live in the suburbs. How have you managed to stay current with what township life is like now and also what the youth culture in the township is like now because it's it's not the same as when we were kids for example yeah yeah youth culture evolves every day um mm. so uh two tons of fun 
which is uh, a coming of age story uh, involving Lerato, who is from um, Alex. That story was kind of inspired by my daughter, who at that time was uh, was uh, was uh, in, in Saint Mary's. She is a, a black uh, girl going to this uh, school, private school, and uh, there were some kids in in that school who were basery kids, you know. Um, so there, there there was a lot of classism. Oh, yeah, basery kid. So they, they they used to make fun of them and that kind of thing. So my daughter is telling me this. Oh, mm. man, it's it's nasty what happens there. So I'm listening to these stories and yeah and later I realized no what if I tell a story um about this disjuncture between a kid who comes from Alex but who's smart enough to get into a private uh, a school such as St Mary's or what whichever and uh, w- the baggage she brings into that school and what she learns from the others who are from the other experience. Yeah. I thought about that. Initially, the story was going to be Lerato goes to St. Mary's or some other private school unnamed. And she meets and befriends a, a white kid from the suburbs at that school. And they become friends and they share experiences. Um, I thought, no, man. It sounds a little, little bit contrived and predictable. So, I made, I, I got Leratos to stay in Alex and have a black kid, middle class. Her, her mother is a, a, a lecturer at university, but they don't live in the suburbs. For whatever it is they're running away from, they leave the suburbs to come and hide in uh, in Alex, so they live in Alex, and uh, but they are very different from the people from Alex. So yeah, they're so like, they're known as the sort of fake white family. Yes, they the are white people from number eighty-seven. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I wanted to explore classism within the black community because it is there. It is there. It is there. Mm-hmm. Well, it's always been there. Even when I was growing up, uh, there were sections of of our township which were reserved or inhabited by well-to-do people, teachers, your nurses, your magistrates, people who are educated, professionals. Mm -hmm. So they had their own section. And their kids didn't go to local schools. They went to boarding school. So there were all those, all those tensions between the us, between us and them. And yeah. So I thought, let me do that in Alex, contemporary Alex as it is now. So that's that's how the book was conceived. Um, yeah, Lerato is working class, uh, broken family, dysfunctional family. The mother is a a, 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 a shoplifter, and uh, uh, she befriends this young lady who is new and in Alex, but is trying to belong because her mother wants to belong. And yeah, so that's yeah, looking at class. Um, yeah, yeah. Great. That leads to to my next question. We've spoken with a lot of black women writers about the pressure 
to represent a whole group of people in your writing. And for black women writers, it's, it seems to sometimes be an issue. I think most of them fight against it, but an expectation that when they come to the page, they come with an agenda yeah. and whether it's an educational agenda or, but they, they are writing on behalf of a whole group of people. Oh, yes. Do you feel that? No, no, no. I get that a lot. For example, one of the reviewers are commenting on two tons of fun. He slated the book. He says, why is this guy telling us about what we already know? We know these things happen. Um, no, um, explore more pressing political issues that are faced. Yeah, well, I, you don't defend um, yourself from book reviews. So there are many expectations that are out there. Mm-hmm. But as a creative person, if you were to write with that in mind, then you won't be, be creative. You are mm. just write what you feel comfortable with, what you believe is a story that you can tell with all honesty and uh, beauty and so on. Um, yes, the expectations will always be there. Uh, yeah, this guy says, uh, oh yeah, you can see Fred lives in the suburbs. Uh, he comes across as he's like looking down upon us in the townships and blah, 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 blah. Uh, it was hurting. Yeah, it was hurtful. But I mean, this life that we've chosen for ourselves will not please everyone. The things that we produce yeah. will not please everyone. Mm. Related to that is, um, we spoke particularly with Sue Nyati about this, the perception that a black writer is going to be a literary writer. That there's almost not permission granted to just be a storyteller. That, you know, you get storytellers and you get literary writers and occasionally it comes together. And when I listen to you, you are a storyteller. Do you see yourself as a storyteller or a literary writer? Because you definitely get a lot of the literary accolades. Uh, I think I'm a storyteller. I'm a storyteller. I don't have the tools of a, a literary writer because I wasn't trained uh, like that. I, I try to emulate the writers that I enjoy. The writers that just do it for me, like I said earlier, mm. Walter Mosley, Stephen King, Elmore Leonard, uh, you know, those kind mm. of entertaining writers. Yes, they, they explore very serious issues. Walter Mosley is into race. Yes, uh, but he's, he does it so elegantly. Mm. Yeah. And so I, I think I'm a storyteller. Yeah. 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 You are a very prolific writer. Um, we get a book from you these days basically once a year. Mm. Have you ever had a publisher say that you are producing too fast? <laughs> because I have yeah. had that. I've had publishers say to me, you know, the world doesn't need two books by Fiona Snickers every year. You've got to slow it down. We're not, prepared. <laughs> We're not prepared to publish you at this level of output. Or, yeah. or are they always happy for another Fred Kamalo novel? Now, one year I published four books Wow! Uh, from different uh, publishing houses. One of the publishing houses was not happy at all Okay. because uh, they, they felt the other books are going to um, overshadow the yes. book. Yeah, and, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, um, so yes, there is that. Slow down, Fred. Slow down mm-hmm. a bit, yeah. And, uh, we know from, from, uh, the likes of Stephen King as well. They were told back then when he started out, 
No, 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 no. The, the market is saturated, which is why he wrote other books under a pseudonym. Mm. Yes, you know, yes. Yeah. Richard Bachman. Yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah Richard Bachman. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So there is that uh, from the publishing um, industry that uh, it's too much, it's too much. But stories, there's so many stories, you know. This is so interesting to me because... Um, one of my writing projects is a joint writing project mm. with Kate Sidley writing as Katie Gale, and we're on a digital platform. Yes. And as many books as we can write, they will publish. Wow. So wow. it's a very different form of writing. We write in a genre, yes. and the readers of genres are greedy for their genre. Oh, yes. They yes. want to read 10, the fantasy. They want yes. to read 10 fantasies in a row. They want to, the, and cozy crime, they want to, which is what we write. They want to write, read 10 cozy crimes in a row. So we can, that like, we feel a bit bad that we only produce two a year. So it's interesting <laughs> how there's a change in, yes, in yes. these different yeah, publishing yeah. mediums. No, yeah. Now that you bring the, the issue of genre, yes, because I read a lot of, of crime. Yeah. Uh, Lee Child. I can't wait mm. for the next one, for the next one, for the next one. Walter Mosley as well. And, uh, so I, yeah, I, I see that with, with genre writing, um, it's kind of, uh, the writer is actually forgiven for, for producing more than one book a year. And so I'm, on. I'm yeah. just putting it to you two, both very prolific writers, that mm. the digital platforms love a prolific writer. Just putting it out there. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so what can we expect from you next? Is the next one in the barrel, loaded, ready to go? I'm busy with the nonfiction project that I, I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. But it came... At a time when I was in the middle of writing um, an autobiography, a, a ghost writing an autobiography of Silomake Kanube, the, the famous actor. Right. He was in Generations. He was in the Whale Caller. He's yeah, he's one of the biggest actors in the in the country at the moment. Mm-hmm. So he commissioned me to write his um, autobiography. So that one I'm writing for uh, Quella Books. Right. Yeah. Uh, so. That is the one that is likely to come out later this year or early next year. Okay. So that's 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 the one. And then next year there might be a crime novel because I'm trying. Exciting. I'm getting into the genre uh, space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And could you see that as the start of a series or is that a standalone? No, it's a series. It's going to be a series. Ooh, I'm planning it as brilliant. a series. Yes. 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 am I allowed to ask the the question that we ask at the end? Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever been allowed to ask it. Fred, we always like to know what people are reading, what is feeding into your creative energy, what are you enjoying reading, what do you want to read recommend what's happening for you in your reading life what am i reading uh i'm rereading i can't remember why i'm rereading beloved yeah uh, tony morrison's beloved mm. yeah but i'm rereading that uh in conjunction with uh with the stuff that relates to my to my uh, non-fiction project yeah there's a lot of material that i'm reading that relates to what the country could be in the next 10 to 20 years. It's very academic research uh, into crime trends, into protest trends. So I'm reading that in conjunction with uh, Beloved. And are you getting more out of it on a reread? Yes, surprisingly enough. I'm seeing, why didn't I see this uh, in my previous reading? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, Fred, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, we want everyone to check out your books. Most of them, I think, are still in print. 
catch the stage play. Uh, I believe it's been to London. Yes, it was Southampton. From Southampton, it went to London. From London, I first saw it in Norway. Wow, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, and from Norway, it moved to Brisbane, Australia. Wow. And then COVID happened, and then they stopped. Right. Yeah, right, so now right. that things are opening up, they they want to bring it back. Yeah. Okay, well, we hope everyone checks it out if it comes to a theatre near them. Mm. And uh, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you very Fred. much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Gail, I was spellbound by that. Fred he, is such a natural storyteller. He is. I actually felt like I could just sit all day asking him to tell stories. I know his grandchildren must have felt during COVID. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> What did you take out of it, Fiona? I was interested in what he had to say about deleting and rewriting. Um, I think he said something very interesting, and I don't know if it did come from Stephen King. It might have. Mm. I haven't read on writing in a while. But this idea that if you've decided not to use something, you don't have to delete it permanently. You can put it in a fragments folder and maybe use it again in the future. It's not something I have tried to do, but it certainly is tempting. I've always mm. thought in the past that anything that should be deleted should just disappear from the face of the earth forever. <laughs> Kill your darling dead. <laughs> yes, make sure it's dead and buried and never to be resurrected. But maybe there is some material that even if it doesn't belong in this particular project, perhaps belongs somewhere else. Are you a big deleter? You know, I used to be when I, my first few books, I would kind of do that vomited out first mm. draft and then Working on the second draft was hard. I would delete pages of writing. I would do massive rewrites. I would look at it and cringe because it was such nonsense. And it it was time-consuming. That really took a long time to get to a kind of usable second draft out of the rubbishy first mm. draft. And then I heard an interview with the author J.A. Huss, who is digital only. She writes erotic romance, I okay. think. And, but she's a very practical and pragmatic person. Mm. And she has done a kind of series of podcasts on how to write. And she talks about, I mean, her daily output is very impressive. It's mm. thousands of words. And she says, once I've written those words, I'm not deleting them. So she is writing something that as it goes on the page for the first time is really good enough to stand scrutiny. And she might tweak things a bit and then it goes through mm. an editor. But she's more experienced and she's focused now on writing a better mm. first draft that can stand on its own. Mm. And that's something I've also been doing, I think, with experience. Mm. Mm. Um, be more thoughtful about what you're putting down on the page because it really is an incredible schlep to do a massive rewrite. Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know if we've talked about before that I think my superpower is that I'm lazy. <laughs> and for me, for the lazy me, um, the idea of having to throw words away and rewrite sections, I just, it really is not a very attractive idea to me. And what did you take from Fred? Well, that, that's the irony. The thing that I've took from Fred and the thing that I want to talk about is actually the exact opposite of that. Don't throw away things. And it's very much about throwing away things. Fred said, 
that before he wrote Bitches Brew, he wrote a few things that he mistook for novels. Yes. And this is something I feel quite strongly about. You know, I've talked before about having realistic expectations. And part of that for me is that often your first book is going to be a practice exercise. Mm -hmm. And my my mother used to say that the first child is like the first pancake and should be thrown away. (laughs) A bit of an irony because I was her only child. She was an only child and my father was an oldest child. So we all would have been thrown away like the first pancake. But I think, I think the thing that comes out of it is often you, you have a learning experience before mm. you do your best work. Mm, and like an apprenticeship. Absolutely. And my first book certainly was not publishable. It was something I mistook for a novel, um, as Fred would have said. And I think often what happens with new writers who don't carry on is they get so stuck on that first crappy book. Mm. And instead of moving on and writing another book, mm. they keep trying to fix that first one. Mm. Don't. Put it aside. Write your next book that might be the great book. And very often authors start off, their first novel is kind of autobiographical. Mm. So they've literally put themselves into that and are very reluctant to let go of it. And actually the second thing that you're going to do is going to be so much better. Yeah, I think often. I think often second books are where you find your pace, you find your voice, you find what you really want to be writing about. I definitely can separate between my first book, Marriage Vows, and my second book, Whatever Happened to the Carly Twins. Mm -hmm. There is a, they are different books. And then from there it followed a more logical progression. Yes. And uh, I, I would hate to tell you how many books I actually wrote before I came to the one that was publishable, but uh, it, it was certainly more than three or four. So my apprenticeship lasted quite a long time. And I'll, I'll own it. I'm, I'm not ashamed of that. It was a learning experience. I needed to go through it. Don't be too precious about your very first output. It might not be the thing that's going to win you fame and fortune. I think that's the best piece of advice to end on. Don't be too precious. <laughs> Full stop. So if our readers are inspired by what Fred said today, um, please let us know. We're on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. If anything we've been talking about has resonated with you, join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.